We love feedback from listeners. We love hearing when things really resonate with you. And we also kind of love hearing where we went wrong. I mean, it sounds counterintuitive, I know, but how else can we grow? So one listener wrote to us regarding two terms, and these terms are special needs and differently abled, that we used in the episode you're about to hear that referred to disabled individuals. And we are the first to admit that we are always still learning. It was a great reminder to us to center the voices of disabled individuals and to continue to listen to those voices about how to refer to them. If you want to learn more, there are a whole host of resources out there, including movies and books and disability rights activists that you can follow. For us, one that we found helpful was we suggest taking a look at the Disability Language Style Guide online, which is available at ncdj.org slash style guide. We're definitely exploring this more and will continue to center the voices of those whose narratives we are trying to shine light on as we grow and learn from each other and from you. So keep those emails coming. When you picture a person with a disability, what image comes to mind? What gender? How do they get around? What color skin do they have? Just curious where you're at. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. And today we're back in ableism in part two of our ableism episode arc. And our working title for this is hashtag disability to white. So hello out there. Well, who really cares what day it is anyway? (laughs) (laughs) It's coronavirus days. If you're listening to this in real time, we're still in shelter in place. I get that it's spring, though, although our weather is not really cooperating. But, you know, that part I know. Days, months. That's the one time I'm going to lord over the fact that you're in California and your weather currently sucks and ours in Colorado has been awesome. I know, but you know how I love a good 10-day forecast. And I just looked at yours, too. Shut up. It is going to snow. By the time you're listening to this, we will have had another snow dump. Yes. Awesome. (laughs) That's okay, because we have gotten more rain, which we need. But I really wish the rain could have been spread out, I don't know, in the winter, like when I didn't want to stand on sports fields, where it's now where I can. So how are you? I'm good. I think I'm better than surviving. I did have a dream. I told you about this earlier that my kid was suffocating last night. And so it was like one of those nightmare adrenaline filled, you shoot out of bed, you're like, and then you're like, oh, it's dark. But wouldn't even give it an hour into this whole distance learning thing this morning. I was like, oh, maybe it was me that was suffocating my child because it was nuts this morning. I was not psyched about how that's going. But overall, we're still lucky. We're healthy. The district's doing a great job. The weather's nice. I mean, it is what it is. We're fortunate and it's all good. How about you? We're good. We're in distance learning. So that means I am the Zoom police every day. It's pretty sweet. But I don't even tell you this, I think. I watched, so like Netflix has, you know, recommended stuff for me now that Designated Survivor is over. And it recommended Tiger King, which everyone has told me about. Okay, so I watched an episode and a half of it. Spoiler alert, I had heard the podcast already because it's true crime. So, you know, and now I'm seriously like side eyeing everyone. because I'm like, do you have an exotic cat in your backyard? Because did you know that the vast majority of exotic cats and big cats are actually privately owned, like not in a zoo, like people just have them. So something for you to think about during shelter in place. 
Uh, or not. The kids are already on a campaign to try to get a turtle. And then going back to our goat theme of a few months ago, my sister-in-law sent a photo of their neighborhood, like a neighbor brought their goat out for a walk to entertain the kids during shelter in place last week. So, you know, it could be your neighbor that another neighbor has a tiger, just saying, according to Tiger King. No, thank you. Okay, that's what, that's what Netflix taught me this week. All right. Are you guys all listening to Tiger King or watching Tiger King? This is insanity. I refuse on principle, but I'm a loser anyway, so... I'm telling you, once you start, you're going to be like, I need more Joe Exotic. Tell me more. So, okay. So from Netflix to the internet, I saw a good meme among the millions of memes that I basically had a chance to look at while scrolling till the ends of the internet, either late at night or while in my Zoom police role. And it was wash your hands and don't be racist. So I thought that was very fitting for our episode today, which is really all about ableism, but also more deeply how disabilities impact people of color and basically everyone who's not white, cisgender and fairly well off, as well as the hashtag disability to white. So let's start with that hashtag and a little background about it. Alana Leary, who's an editor, social media manager, and activist living in Boston, Massachusetts, wrote a blog post for Rooted in Rights in 2017 about the impact of this hashtag, which is disability to white, which Felissa Thompson used first on May 18th in 2016. And pretty much immediately with the use of that hashtag started meaningful conversations about race and intersectionality in the disability community. She, being Felissa Thompson, started the hashtag as a reaction to an XOJ article about beauty and disability that featured only white disabled people. The hashtag quickly took off and started trending and other disabled people of color jumped on the bandwagon. I did. I checked it out. I had not heard of the hashtag until you mentioned it. And I saw like over 700 posts with that hashtag so far. And I guess that's why I asked that question at the beginning, because as you said in that article, so many visuals, when you think of somebody with a disability, start with someone who's white. Yeah. Most of our minds. Yeah. For some people, and going back to what Felissa, why she started this hashtag, for some people, it was the first time they had publicly shared their plight at being invisible in this community. It was a space for those perspectives to be aired. And for many disabled people of color, it was extremely validating to finally have these conversations in a public space. This hashtag also became a wake-up call and a call to action for white disabled people. Disability to White constantly reminds Alana the Leary, the author of this article, as an activist that she needs to do better. It isn't enough to cover disability rights topics without seeking and centering the voices of disabled people of color. Thompson believes that the most important impact that the hashtag has had is that many people of color are no longer hesitant to call out the disability community when we engage in behavior that upholds racism or white supremacy. She also notes that creating that besides doing that, the other real purpose of this hashtag was creating a community and knowing that disabled people of color are not alone. She uses the hashtag in her overall work as an advocate to raise the issue of intersectionality and discuss how disabled white people can become better allies. And, you know, we love talking about allyship here, too. Other activists have been deeply impacted by Thompson's hashtag, too. Denari Moore, who's a writer, poet, songwriter, and activist, says it opens up the doors for disabled people of color who are and have been doing the work or have been erased from history. The more people are aware of the work that disabled people of color are doing, hopefully the more access we can get to the opportunities that benefit both us as individuals and benefit the movements and work we help to sustain. And even better, disability to white has even spread outside the U.S. borders. 
Nicole Cowie, who's a disability rights activist in Trinidad and Tobago, says Thompson's hashtags and overall work forced me to reflect on my own personal context as a black woman with a disability and begin to examine the intersections of race, class and gender with disability in my country. Her work makes me want to do even more research and reflection to add to the small canon of disability research in my country and in the wider Caribbean. There's still work to do, though isn't there always. Intersectionality is often completely left out of mainstream media, and the disabled characters we do see are almost always white, straight, cisgender men. Thompson also says we need to reshape our disability organizations from the inside out by making it a priority to hire disabled people of color because many prominent organizations have a history of being racist and exclusive. We also need to support the work of disabled people of color who are often doing phenomenal work with very little money. And I just had a question. When you say that mainstream media, the disabled characters, can you think of anybody? Like right now, as I think of, I don't watch very much TV or movies. So when I think about it, I really can't think of a single character, let alone a person of color. Do you have anything in mind when you hear that? Well, funny you should ask, designated survivor. <laughs> Thank you. I just like love that. I walked into that one. Well, Michael J. Fox was on it. Right. But white man. And then there was a Netflix show called Sex Education, which is a great show and like the most diverse cast I've ever seen. But they do have one person on there who's disabled and it is a white guy. So interesting, you know. Right. And, you know, in your talk so far, you mentioned the word racist and white supremacy. And I feel like it's so easy to be like, no, like this isn't racist. But the idea of it is really just to point out that there is a divide along racial lines and that white people are being put ahead of people of color in this situation in terms of supremacy, right? The phrases are not meant to necessarily invoke a defensiveness, but just to point out that we are missing things. We are missing a variety of people, not just along ability lines, but along the lines of race. Right. And, you know, it always goes back to history and the history of our country in particular and how we have systems in place that really have divided and have given a lot of privilege to white people. And that is reflected in all spheres, including this sphere of disability. So that's a really important point. I'm glad you said that. So just summing up sort of this article and Alana Leary's work and thoughts, Velissa Thompson's work, as she writes, impacts both people of color and allies and speaks to the nuances of what identity means. And I think that is really important as well. Carly Finlay Morrow, who's a writer, speaker and appearance activist from Australia, says, as a red woman with a black mother and white father, I don't identify as black or white. I wanted to learn more about black people's experiences because I don't know enough. Through reading widely and talking to black friends, I realized just how underrepresented non-white dis people with disability are. And I think that's the learning and the wanting to learn more for yourself and the education that where growth really starts. Yeah, I think that's true. And it's always this process, right? We're always still learning more. And that's what I'm grateful for people who are listening to this show who are alongside this journey with us. So along those lines, though, in terms of the journey and the growing, unfortunately, things haven't changed that much from 2017 when this article was originally written. According to an essay written by a Rooted in Rights contributor in 2019, so just last year, there's still a gap between white disabled people and everyone else. 
In this particular article we're going to talk about, the quote says, if I'm being honest, the past years connecting with disability spaces have often given me the impression that whiteness reigns supreme when it comes to who gets priority in resource allocation and conversation topics. As grateful as I am to witness conversations about mental health addressing institutional conditions beyond stigma, the conversations still remain woefully focused on mental health concerns related only to middle class white folks. And when race is introduced into the discussion, many white disabled folks tend to become defensive, wondering why folks of color with mental health issues are trying to be divisive. Many white disabled folks don't ever consider that we are simply trying to have our issues matter as much as theirs have relative to the history of mainstream disability organizing. And as important as it is for trans folks of color like me to be chosen for positions like this fellowship, I won't deny a familiar worry creeping into my head that mirrors frustrations Rooted and Rights Digital Manager, this Velissa Thompson, once expressed. And so the author says, the concern is that my identity will become a hot button issue to address at one point in time and then be forgotten when the next, quote, woke topic comes up. And so, I mean, you can tell that contributor is a trans person of color who's also disabled. And they continue, I'll be frank, I'm not unfamiliar with feeling out of place because of my identity. In queer trans spaces, I have navigated the same relationship with whiteness in terms of whose voices were prioritized over others. In person of color focused spaces I cherish, my mental health issues made me stand out in often uncomfortable ways, especially when confronting people who only paid lip service to disability concerns. I know my communities need work, and I'm patient and pragmatic enough to know that it will take time to accomplish that work. Making truly inclusive spaces and caring communities is like good writing. It takes time, effort, and multiple people giving their input equally. The writer continues, however, I also think it has long been time for more white-centric disability organizations to recognize the amazing contemporary work many of these same communities have done to add complexity to disability conversations. And she goes on to list whether it's the amazing political organizing done by disabled queer trans voices like Lydia Brown, Mia Mingus, and organizations like the National Coalition for Latinx with Disabilities or the social media work of Alice Wong. I know my communities have much to offer to the amazing disabled futures we are all building. And so I'm going to interrupt myself. I've done this before, I think. <laughs> I do want to make something clear. You know, we went from talking about how do you think people look with disabilities but there are disabilities that are invisible and that does not make them any less valid. And so I wanted to make something clear here. Mental health disability is just as valid of a disability as a physical health disability. And if you want a little more background on ableism in general, definitely go listen to last week's episode, episode 54. But for what it's worth, I thought I'd throw in here the questions that the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services asks in order for people to help navigate the support they'd get through the Affordable Care Act. So these are the questions, they're all yes, no questions, that our government asks to decide if someone has a disability. There's six questions. You ready? Hmm. It's one, are you deaf or do you have serious difficulty hearing? Two, are you blind or do you have serious difficulty seeing even when wearing glasses? Three, because of a physical, mental, or emotional condition, do you have serious difficulty concentrating, remembering, or making decisions? And this and the other questions are for five years and older. Question four, do you have serious difficulty walking or climbing stairs? Question five, do you have difficulty dressing or bathing? And question six, this one is for people 15 years and older. Because of a physical, mental, or emotional condition, do you have difficulty doing errands alone, such as visiting a doctor's office or shopping? So when I was reading these, I really took these on board as like measurements about people's capacity to function independently. 
It's not talking about like, why can you not function? It's not the root cause, but all of these are about whether you can function, whether you have the ability or disability in terms of functioning independently. And so going back to this idea of intersectional approaches to disability, I don't know if that intersectionality applies even here, if that's even a thing, but appreciating that until now it's been really whitely centered, that is really the key and the, to understanding hashtag disability too white. Because we know that disability does, or ableism does not exist in a vacuum. It's definitely complicated by race, gender, sexuality, class, age, and other minority statuses. And so if those voices are not being represented, then they're not being heard. And when you consider some of those sobering statistics about disabled people in this country, it's important to remember that many of these individuals are not white or cisgender or wealthy. So these are some of these stats also that are a little crazy. As of 2016... Half of all people killed by police are disabled. As of 2016, at least 30% of the 2.3 million people incarcerated in the U.S. are disabled. Examples of police officers misinterpreting autistic behavior as noncompliance or disrespect were found back in 2014 when we were looking at law enforcement. I mean, that's sobering. Yeah, those are really big and indicate so many bigger issues, some of which we've talked about, some of which we haven't that go into all of those statistics, right? And, you know, while some of those statistics may seem really far away from your world or our world, here's one that's not. Employment, which is we are recording this in a week in which U.S. jobs basically went back to their pre-2008 rate. Which is not good. Right, right. That was not an upswing. Employment seems to be on everyone's minds these days and for good reason. But for people with disabilities, it's been on their mind for years The Brookings Institute set out to understand how disability affects employment and realized that it wasn't merely being disabled that sometimes made employment harder. It was also related to those factors that, Sarah, you talked about before, race, ethnicity, including education, geography, and so much more. So the Institute started with this idea. A smaller share of people in their prime working years, which they defined as ages 25 to 54, are employed now than in decades past, and some have wondered whether disabilities and health problems have played a role in that decline. People with disabilities have much lower employment rates than people without disabilities, and disabilities are one of the most commonly cited reasons for not working. With that as context, they set out to better understand the role of geography and demography in patterns of disability among prime-aged adults. So disability can take many forms, but the CDC provides a useful general definition. Disability is any condition of the body or mind that makes it more difficult for the person with the condition to do certain activities and interact with the world around them. The onset of disability can also take many forms. It may present itself at birth. It can stem from an accident or injury or result from a long-standing condition or disease, among other causes. So given that definition, 9% of adults aged 25 to 54, which equals 11 million Americans, self-reported as disabled in 2016. Some patterns by place and demographics are already really well established. Disability is disproportionately concentrated in the Southeast, Midwest, and Appalachian areas, the so-called disability belt, and people with disabilities disproportionately include people with low levels of education and incomes. So when you started this section, I was like, what do you mean geography? I think it's fascinating that disabilities are concentrated in different regions. Like, I would not have guessed that, but I suspect you're going to tell us why that's even possible that it's a thing. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Because that was somewhat surprising to me, too. But yes, we're going to break it down. So 
you know, analyses at the metropolitan level of disability along these lines are less common. And given the regional nature of labor markets, regional level data should inform efforts to help people with disabilities. So the Brookings analysis used data from the American Community Survey, which is ACS, to examine disability rates of the 100 largest metropolitan areas, as well as differences by education and race or ethnicity. And they didn't limit their analysis to those receiving disability benefits, but rather they included everyone who reported a disability. So in order to get the broadest picture possible of what this looks like in the United States. So as probably is no surprise to anyone, disability rates range considerably among the 100 largest metropolitan areas from just under 4% up to 13%. Places with the lowest disability rates have strong economies and well-educated populations in cities from coast to coast. So that's a nationwide trend. Metropolitan areas with the highest disability rates are located both within and outside of the disability belts, coming back to that term again, sometimes due to historically manufacturing-based or industrial economies or have large tourism or agricultural sectors that employ many workers with low levels of education. So if you connect disability, right, with the fact that a lot of times people with disabilities who self-report those are often from have less education, have lower income. Those are the people who are largely in these areas where they're pulling these reports from. And I wonder what the breakdown there of like mental disability versus physical disability is, because when you just said manufacturing or industrial or agricultural, like I picture that as like, yeah, far, like you're physical with your job in those areas. And that would be difficult if you had a physical disability, for example, to do that in those areas that the economy is heavily weighed on that. Right. When I was researching this part, too, I kept thinking to like the school discussions of the industrial revolution and when they started factories and people were like losing limbs because of, you know, a factory accident or whatever. But I'm sure because you can self-report and because they're looking at, you know, emotional, mental and physical, I'm sure it's encompassed in there. It would be really interesting to hear what that percentage is, though. So when they looked at race, differences were apparent. At the national level, Native Americans had the highest disability rate among working age adults at 16%, followed by Blacks at 11%, Whites at 9%, Hispanics at 7%, and Asians at 4%. Yet disability rates by race and ethnicity also vary greatly among metro areas. Asians exhibit both low levels of disability and relatively small variation between places, ranging from 2% to 13%. On the other hand, Blacks and Hispanics both exhibited wider ranges, from the low single digits to about 20%. In most places at the national, as at the national level, Blacks have higher disability rates than whites, up to 2.5 times greater. In a number of metro areas, however, which were sort of concentrated in the Southeast and then in Connecticut, Blacks have the same or lower disability rates than whites. So similarly, although Hispanics have lower disability rates than most other races or ethnicities at the national level, they are more likely to be disabled than whites and blacks in metro areas throughout the country. So it's interesting to see the divides among race and that the trends seem to hold regardless sort of throughout the nation. Totally. And I'm, I mean, as a half Japanese person, I'm sitting there being like, Asians exhibit low level. Like, what is that? What makes that happen? I think that's fascinating. When I think about that, too, I think about yourself reporting this, too, right? It's not just people receiving disability help, but these are also people who are self-reporting. I think back to cultural stigma around so much of this for a lot of these minority groups, you know, and we're going to talk about that a little bit deeper in this episode. But I think that, you know, when you're self-reporting, 
that's something to always keep in mind, right? So among the entire prime age population in the United States, the disability rate among those with only a high school diploma is three times higher than among those with a bachelor's degree. So that's 12% for high school diploma only versus 4% with those who have a bachelor's degree. In a number of places, however, that gap is even greater, particularly in formerly industrial metro areas on the East Coast. So in some ways, you know, and and I'm sure you listeners, you, Sarah, feel this way too, this data isn't necessarily surprising because as we just discussed, people with disabilities have often have lower education levels than people without disabilities. And education is a powerful predictor of health status in general. We've definitely talked about that. But the size of the gap is sobering and really points to a complicated relationship between education and disability. So even in a post-Americans with Disabilities Act world, people with disabilities can face barriers to completing their education. And education is linked to overall health in a myriad of ways, including individual health knowledge and behaviors, access to healthcare, exposure to environmental toxins, and jobs that are more physically demanding or dangerous. Geography also interacts with education and disability. Low education is more strongly associated with disability in some regions than others, suggesting that education is one of a number of factors that influence local disability rates. But the relationship between disability and geography is longstanding because researchers have noted it for decades, suggesting the patterns have deep roots in industrial and sociocultural conditions. So... Not surprising to us. In other words, history, and in particular our country's history specifically, plays a part in how we address disability. And I just totally read your part too, because I got so amped up about it. <laughs> no, it's so true. It's fine. That makes sense. I can take it on from here. Because I do want to talk about the mental health part, because this whole trend is also apparent even when we consider non-physical disabilities like mental health. There was an article in Vice, and they noted that it's easy to point to the socioeconomic factors that disproportionately affect young people of color's well-being. Households headed by Black Americans are, quote, at least twice as likely as whites to be poor or to be unemployed. And we've talked about it before, the wealth gap between white and Latina households is still a significant one. A lot of it points to a history of systemic inequality, which, you know, we'll say that nicely, whose basically, in fact, has stretched into so many aspects of young black and brown people's health today. But money and class are only part of the race-related accessibility problems in mental health care, at least. So let's touch on this for a little bit. Young black and Latinx people in the U.S. have a very different relationship with mental illness than their white peers, including higher rates of attempted suicide. And in communities of color, it's still largely taboo to talk about mental illness openly. I mean, we talked about this in episode six in Mental Health Month. I still remember Philip Roundtree's TEDx talk about Black Mental Health Matters. Very charismatic speaker. I would recommend looking at that. But data shows that many of these young people don't seek help or when they do, they have very limited access. So taking some quotes from Alfie Breland Noble, who is a psychologist and mental health disparities researcher at Georgetown's University's Center for Trauma and the Community, they say, for African Americans and other young people of color, the stigma really manifests in a couple of ways. One is that many of us don't see mental illness as a physical or physiological health problem. And to be fair, there's a strong body of research, including this person's work, that's referred to as treatment engagement 
right? So how do you get people into therapy and keep them in therapy? And what they're saying is we don't necessarily in general buy into the idea that mental illness is hereditary, it's genetic, and they're chemical components. And so what they're saying is until you get that buy-in, until the idea that it's a medical illness sets in, they would basically say, why do you need to go see a doctor for it? So specific example here, Jameer Milligan, who was a 19-year-old student living outside of Philly when he was first sought out therapy, he struggled with classically millennial identity issues, as he self-described them. I knew I was brought into this world for great things, but I wasn't experiencing that on the day-to-day. Jameer's now 28 and working in media technology and said, and then I was in a tough relationship where the girl I was dating kind of used that, the knowledge of what I was going through, to her advantage, which ultimately turned into me wanting to commit suicide. Jameer wanted to try and make sense of it all and thought a therapist might offer unbiased help. And so he said, once I actually began going to therapy, finding someone who genuinely aligned with my concerns was an uphill battle. So there was a few clinicians that he saw before finding a fit. And while his therapy was covered by insurance, the copay sometimes didn't fit into his budget. And yet when he missed a session, he felt like he was sacrificing his overall wellness. Just getting to that first session, though, was challenging. Jameer told the author that he didn't have any friends or family members who'd been to therapy, so everything was self-guided. He said, my mom is a preacher, and she never made me feel like it would be weird, but internally, you kind of just have that feeling. And quote, that feeling, as so many black and brown people know, is centuries worth of shame surrounding mental illness, especially depression, which is what Jameer was primarily dealing with. Depending on your background, depression and other mental illnesses have been addressed in a plethora of ways, including praying it away in Black, Latinx, and South Asian cultures. People also self-medicate or just ignore it, right? Breland Noble said, I think we have culturally sanctioned ways in which we cope, and none of those include traditional forms of talk therapy. So she finds that there's huge resistance spanning multiple generations that can be summed up as, we just don't do that. That's what white people do. And one of uh, Breland Noble's therapy clients, a Filipino teenager, once told her that her parents referred to what she was going through, which was an anxiety disorder, as first world problems. Yeah. I mean, think you... That's a lot of pressure. For those of us who think that going to therapy or going to talk to someone, you know, it's a tough step in a lot of ways, but it's doubly or triply tough when you're thinking about the cultural pressure and the societal pressure that you feel on top of your own fears. Yeah. Right. Because it's already, you already probably question, you know, it's pretty clear if you have a fever and blah, 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 you kind of know when to go to a doctor. But when you're talking about mental health, when is it bad enough? When is that trigger? How bad does it have to get before you go seek help or you feel that you can overcome this cultural pressure to seek the help that you need? You know, I'm going to talk about this example of Pablo Zuniga, who's a 27-year-old Guatemalan American from California. And he said, a lot of the Latin American community does not necessarily agree with therapy, especially for men. You're called a maricon, which is a vulgar term meaning, and I hate saying these words. I know. There's just so much hate in that word, right? Yeah. Right? So if we're triggered, yes, what he said was it then triggers people who are in the LGBTQ plus community. It is a triggering word and you don't want to be called that. And what he said was, I faced this many times when I would bring up therapy to my family. It was only accepted when I told them at one point in time, I considered Mm self-harm. And we just talked about that line. Like, does it have to come to that before you're willing to or able to get help. And so Pablo in this example recalled specifically trying to tell his mother about his depression when he was 19. He said, I told her, I think I need therapy. I've been feeling sad. There's a lot of issues that I'm ignoring and I hate feeling like this. 
Pablo's mother wondered why. She told me that her life was so much harder than ours, how all the challenges that my sister and I face are nothing compared to what she did. Mm, Yeah. And so we got a quote here from Harold Magney, who's a New York City-based psychologist, who said, I'm also the child of immigrants, and this conversation is not unfamiliar to me. Magni's young, black, and has had several clients like Pablo who are fed the idea that they should just suck it up because their life is not as hard compared to the previous generations. But Magni stressed that the immigrant experience was traumatizing yet informative for so many, including his own parents. And yet ultimately, he said that parents who dismiss the idea of their kids seeking help are poorly educated about what therapy actually is. As Breland Noble put it, seeking help indicates weakness in a cultural narrative where weakness has never been an option. Jameer says the societal expectations of black men are hyperbolic extension of the emotional standards men are held to. Black men are portrayed as hypermasculine, almost anti-emotional, and that affects the way we see ourselves and the range of emotions we're able to show. So if you think about mental health and you just the complications and those stories are so powerful in what pressures you feel besides just everything that everyone feels, um, the barriers to getting help to even having that first conversation are almost insurmountable. And if you're thinking about self-harm as the alternative, that's way far down that path. So, And yet it's so counter, I don't want to say counterintuitive, that's not the right phrase, but you think about the pressure that minorities in this country are under every day just existing with all the microaggressions and the outward aggressions and the hate and all of that that people of color have to bear on a regular basis just literally existing to go to the store to walk down the street of all people yeah i would want support to be available because it is more than what the average white person bears just walking down the street and existing in their skin yeah totally agree It's heartbreaking to see the group that may benefit and need this the most because of everything that has culturally and historically been put on them, unable to get that because of all sorts of pressures that come from within their own culture and their space and sphere. And if that wasn't enough, let's not forget insurance. If you have insurance you purchased as part of the Trump era Affordable Care Act, getting therapy can still be nearly impossible since the mid and lower tier plans don't cover it until you get your $5,700 deductible out of the way. Holy cow. Right. So if you just got, you know, six grand that you're just going to throw in there, then sure, like therapy will be covered. Until then, maybe the federal government, as part of their next two trillion dollar stimulus package, needs to boot people an extra six grand so that they can just actually pay for therapy because they have lost jobs and life sucks. Right. And if you're thinking about who's in those middle and lower tier plans, research from 2016 shows that black and Latino Americans have had persistently lower insurance coverage rates at all ages. And that even people who do get insurance at certain points in life are significantly more likely than their white counterparts to lose it. So you might only be covered for a short period of time. Even after the ACA was passed, the disparities in insurance coverage for Latino people are alarming. And let's also not forget that in America, we have a mental health system weighted heavily towards non-minority values and cultural norms, as the National Alliance in Mental Health puts it. I mean, this means that therapy and most mental illness diagnostic screenings, at least until quite recently, were designed for white people. They don't often account for differences in values, norms, or variations in verbal and nonverbal expression. Even more egregious is the seemingly unconscious discrimination that a mental health practitioner might exhibit even before the first meeting. 
The Atlantic reported on this phone-based experiment, which I thought was fascinating. Oh, I loved this. Researchers had voice actors try to make first-time appointments with therapists. Even after controlling for variables like stated insurance coverage, the researchers found that black voice actors, who were like purposely distinguished by black-accented English, were significantly less likely than whites to be offered an appointment. Can you believe that? I mean, I do believe it because you change people's name at the top of a, I was going to say RV, a CV. Right. It's a resume. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm dreaming of vacation. <laughs> but yeah, I do believe it, but it's still disgusting to realize that it does continue to happen. Of course it does, but this is what people are up against. Right. And you're not applying for a job here. You're asking for help and there you're still being judged on who the person perceives you to be, Right. Yes, good point. Who the person perceives you to be. That said, it's encouraging in some ways that more young people of color are increasingly vocal about wanting help. And the system, however slowly, is making considerable progress in addressing gaps in research, in training, and the provision of culturally sensitive mental health treatment. And that's from Lakeisha Sumner, who's a clinical psychologist at UCLA and a member of the American Psychological Association. Sumner, who works with a diverse group of students, told the author of this article that she's inspired by their perspective on mental health. Many of these students are proactive in seeking treatment and often pursue psychotherapy as a preventative measure in strengthening their ability to take better care of themselves. I do like that. That is nice to end to, you know, that there is hope that people are trying to take advantage of this, even though there are so many barriers in the way. And remember, in spite of all of this and amidst all of this, that we are still in an election year. And these issues that we just talked about, these disability issues, make up some of the hot topics for this election. And you realize, as we talk about this, the news just broke that Bernie Sanders is out. So it looks increasingly like Biden and Trump, correct? Yes. So when we're talking now about this election. Yeah. You want to think about where each of these two stand on these specific positions, because they're not going to have the same views. And there are two sort of different models in each of these four points that highlight points that we're going to talk about. So when you are thinking about November, or if you're still in a primary state, well, less if you're in a primary state, but thinking about November, think about these issues when you think about how we can help support or who we put in office and how they will help support everyone in this country. All right, so let's start with Social Security. While Social Security itself is, in general, highly valued by people with disabilities, most agree that its disability programs are long overdue for reform. But disabled people and others who look closely at Social Security have vastly different ideas of what exactly needs to be changed. So there are two really dominant models of change out there. The first is to narrow the eligibility for disability under Social Security and serve fewer people in order to preserve that program for the disabled people who really need them or to really do the opposite, significantly expand and extend benefits, specifically by allowing disabled recipients to work, earn, and save a lot more than current rules allow, ultimately making disabled people more financially secure and fulfilled. All right, so that's the first point. Second one is long-term services and support. People with disabilities who need ongoing help with basic everyday tasks like bathing, dressing, going to the bathroom, cooking, housekeeping, or just moving around usually rely on a variety of services broadly known as long-term services and supports. But while in theory these services belong to a single category serving a single basic purpose, they actually differ a great deal. Long-term services and supports in practice tend to reflect one of two different sets 
of priorities, health, safety, and control, or freedom, self-direction, integration. So these narratives seem to reflect almost exactly opposite values, right? But in practice, safety and freedom aren't mutually exclusive, and focusing on each person's choice of services is one way to resolve the conflict. So if you're not wedded to a specific set, but you can pick and choose what you need, that gives you both security but also freedom. The Disability Integration Act is a bill in Congress aimed at ensuring that people who need long-term care would have a real choice of where and how to receive it. All right. Third, mental health and opioids. Mental health policies and approaches to opioids are divided along strikingly similar lines. While there is broad consensus that we need more mental health services, as well as strategies to fight the opioid crisis, what people actually mean tends to boil down to one of two different approaches, coercive treatment and more institutional beds for unwilling patients, or simply more accessible, affordable, everyday mental health services and addiction treatment for people who need and want them. The key difference in policy approaches to these particular disability issues is whether the disabled people involved are viewed as suitable partners in finding solutions for themselves or as fundamentally unreliable and incapable of rationally understanding their own situations. So these narratives help shape these issues in two different ways. In one, disabled people need to be acted upon, while in the other, they have a legitimate and necessary voice in policymaking. So the real challenge is to develop approaches to mental health and opioids that address disabled people's right to mental health assistance, addiction treatment, and pain relief without prejudice and with a full recognition of basic human rights. Yes. Amen to that asterisk. Like, (laughs) isn't that what we talked about at the very beginning of the whole thing on ableism is that it was like this medical model from the doctor's perspective of how something is wrong with someone and that something has to be fixed and it is put upon them. And we're really talking about shifting away from that narrative and engaging with human beings as other human beings and seeing them as differences in this experience of being human, not right and wrong. Yeah. And you can, you cannot. So, yes, so true. All right. And this last one has been in the news a lot because it was a big issue already very openly discussed in this initial campaign sort of rounds in the primary rounds, subminimum wage. So is the longstanding policy of allowing certain employers to pay some disabled workers less than minimum wage a necessary opening to employment opportunities for people with disabilities? Or is it an outdated and exploitative policy long due for overdue for repeal? So answers, not surprisingly, seem to depend on two vastly different ideas about disability and paid work. So the main reasons, you know, this issue isn't already resolved is really sort of a fear of change, a failure of imagination, and in some cases, employers who really like a cheap source of labor. So out of all of the current disability issues, this may be the one closest to being solved, as some states have already gotten rid of the subminimum wage successfully. And while we were writing this, there was still one current presidential candidate, Bernie Sanders, who was in favor of doing so nationally. But I, we encourage you to really look at both Biden's and Trump's position on this. I've got to admit ignorance. I did not even know that there was such a thing as a sub-minimum wage that people were allowed to pay those with disabilities. Yeah. I mean, my visceral reaction is that seems wrong. And I can understand some of the employer side arguments for that, probably the lawyer side in me. But, you know, I'm glad that this, you know, hopefully is moving towards a resolution on a national level. And it's not just going to be a state specific issue, hopefully. So 
please keep these issues in mind and definitely read more about them if you're not familiar with them as you head into November, into any remaining primaries. And let's remember, in the end, if you're not seeing a diverse representation of people with disabilities in decision-making in positions, and that doesn't just mean white people with a range of disabilities, then that's keeping hashtag disability to white. Let's make sure everyone's voices are heard. If you like what you've heard or you like what you're hearing, please take a second to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you use. It would mean a lot. That helps us spread the word about our podcast. Or if you're into direct sharing, tell a friend or five about us. And if you want any more information, go to our website at DearWhiteWomen.com. We've got all the past episodes, email signups, and all our social media links from there so you can stay connected and get all the bonus material that we offer.